welcome to episode 445 of the Cyber Law Podcast, where lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and we're about to express views not shared by our institutions, our clients, our friends, our family, not even, unfortunately, our pets. We're going to try something new. We're going to devote the first to half of the episode to one case, and that's the Gonzalez versus Google Section 230 case that the Supreme Court just heard argument on. And we've got a great panel of people to talk about it. Adam Kandub, professor of law at Michigan State University and a litigant, or at least an amicus in Google. Michael Ellis, formerly with the House Intelligence Committee and the National Security Council and now a visiting fellow at Heritage. Gus Hurwitz, who teaches law at the University of Nebraska. And Mark McCarthy, who teaches law at Georgetown and is a senior fellow at Brookings Institution's Center for Technology Governance. And finally, I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and the host and chief provocateur for today's program. Why don't we jump right in? Adam, why don't you give us two minutes on what Google versus Gonzalez is actually about and why it's such a big deal? So... Um, the Gonzalez plaintiffs represent family members of individuals who were killed at, at some of the big terrorist attacks of the last few years, including the San Bernardino attack and the Backland attack in, in Paris. And they're claiming that platforms, particularly YouTube here, provided the sort of assistance aided and embedded the terrorists and thus are liable under a statute that provides for liability for, tort liability for assistance to terrorism. So it's a, it's a lower standard than criminal aiding and abetting, but it's helping out the terrorists. And their theory of aiding and abetting is that YouTube's recommended videos radicalize the terrorists. So you, know, you have to accept the, the idea, the notion that these individuals would have been peace-loving, peace-seeking, having normal occupations, but then you know they got into the radicalizing spiral of the YouTube suggested videos and they became terrorists. So the, the theory of liability is somewhat, I would say, strained, and that came up in, in the Tamna case the next day. But before they could get to that theory of liability, they had to deal with, of course, YouTube or, or Google, its parent company's defense theory, which was, of course, Section 230C1, the 26 words that essentially eliminate liability for platforms for the content of their users, their users' content. And this is significant because the Supreme Court has yet to rule on Section 230, has kept has mum for the last 25 years, and everyone is very concerned that they might say something that will push the ball one way or the other toward more expanded liability, cementing what many of us feel to be the flawed interpretation of many courts of appeals, or, as some conservatives hope, a narrowing of Section 230 to its more textual basis. Yeah, I think that gives us a good overview of what the case is about. And I'm going to try to jump right to what happened at oral argument and what it tells us about how the case is likely to come out. I'm not going to spend too much time talking myself. I have written a long justice by justice breakdown for the Volek conspiracy that anybody who wants to look at can read. It comes to the conclusion, it's a little bit aggressive as a, as a guess, that there are seven justices who said, you know, I think the Section 230 immunity as currently being applied in the lower courts is wrong. And Google should not be immune just by saying, hey, I'm a publisher doing what publishers do. There needs to be some restriction on that immunity. And I kind of think that that's what we're going to hear from them. Now, Google still wins. This, this case is, is going to be a disaster for the Gonzalez family, but I think it could turn out to be a strategic disaster for Google as well. All right, so that's, that's my prediction. Why don't we start with Michael Ellis? Michael, how do you see this coming out? Well, you know, Stuart, I, I think you're perfectly reading the tea leaves of the, the justice questions, but I think there's a, there's a threshold issue of, of whether they'll even get to the 230 analysis here. There was another case argued the following day on the underlying question, the, the Tamna case of whether this kind of aiding and abetting liability under the Anti-Terrorism Act can even reach conduct as, as alleged by Gonzalez plaintiffs, and in that case, you know, discussing Twitter's similar actions. And, you know, it's it's not clear to me that the justices are really eager to, to wade in. They obviously granted cert on the Gonzalez case. There's a lot of ju judge-made law on 230 of the Courts of Appeals developed over the past couple of decades that many people, you know, I think rightfully point out, goes well beyond the text of the statute. But 
you know, upon viewing it all now, after having read certain Gonzalez, I, I think the justice may be looking for a way out. And there's a, there's a there's a very substantial chance that they they decide that they, they don't they don't have to get there they don't have to reach this question and as an act of judicial modesty they'll step back wait for the next case and there will undoubtedly be another case which might present the issue a little more cleanly. In fact, I think Adam has written on this publicly. You know, procedurally, there are some there are some kind of goofy things about how Gonzalez got up to the Supreme Court, including the plaintiffs you know, sort of switching their theory midway through. You know, the, the court might be looking for just a better vehicle to really redefine the 230 doctrine and, and Gonzalez might not be it. So Adam, you've written on this. There was a lot of bait and switch here, but if you're going to dismiss as improvidently granted because of bait and switch, I'm not sure you do that after three and a half hours of argument. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of lawyers' fees. Not that but, there's anything wrong with that. What concept does the lawyers always <laughs> win, right? Yeah, there's yeah. new theory of statutory construction that requires <laughs> minimizing lawyers' fees. Yeah, I mean, Google in its own briefs you know, suggested that it be dismissed improvidently. Th- their behavior was very odd. First, they presented, you know, well, they got cert on this question that phrased the issue as editorial function. And whether Section 230 grants immunity for all all of Google's editorial function, then in the question presented in the brief, they changed that question to a more nuanced test, which interestingly enough was what Google also wanted. So we had both plaintiff and respondent offering the court the same test, which interestingly is what a lot of people feel the court of appeals have gone off wrong. So you know both. Both parties offering a flawed test, in my opinion. And then the Gonzalez plaintiffs very strangely submitted an amicus brief in the Florida social media case on the cert petition, which argued for a very broad rule understanding of Section 230 that would preempt the Florida social media law. So they're arguing to the court in the same term for a broad reading of Section 230 in one case and then a narrow section reading of Section 230 for their own. And it's sort of inexplicable. I'll just leave it there. All right. Well, so let, let's let's ask Gus because I think Gus may share your view. I, I may win the case, the, the Supreme Court seven to two, but I'm losing this panel two to nothing so far. <laughs> so I'm going to go off the rails here, Stuart. Do you remember the 1979 movie The Warriors? No. Okay, well, this is a great movie. Gangs of New York, total. It's a post-apocalyptic vision of New York City. It's great. In any event, there's a soundbite there that's been sampled many times in music and stuff like that. But it's this this male voice shouting out to a large crowd, can you dig it? <laughs> and that is the question here. Can the court dig? Dismiss as improvidently granted the case. You, you, uh, Everyone has mentioned this. I think that the justices regret having granted cert in this case. I think that they thought it was a vehicle to get to Section 230, which uh, Justice Thomas clearly has expressed interest in, but other justices as well. It's this really big law that the court has never really weighed in on, and they thought, okay, it's time to do this, and this is a great vehicle for it. And it turns out this case is a crummy vehicle for it. So I echo the idea that the court is going to use Tomna as a the case argued the day after, the Twitter case, as a vehicle to get rid of this case. And in particular, my reasoning for this, and I, I should say, who who knows what they're going to do. But as you pointed out, Stuart, going through all the justices, it was a messy argument, lots of ideas, no clear consensus, no clear partisan understanding. Anything could happen here. But I, I think that there was some pretty clear understanding. Justices Kagan and Kavanaugh, I think, pretty clearly think this is an issue for Congress to deal with. There was a fair bit of discussion about whether doing away with or limiting Section 230 would lead to death by a thousand duck bites or a thousand cuts, just endless litigation for the platforms. I am marginally sympathetic, but also marginally non-sympathetic to those arguments, but a, a lot of question and concern here. So I expect one of two things is most likely to happen. Either the the court dismisses Gonzalez and uses Tomna to say some stuff about Section 230, ask some broad questions, give the lower courts some license to 
think more broadly about Section 230, casting doubt on Zarin, the lower court case from the 90s that kind of has defined what Section 230 has meant for the last 26 years, and also to plead with Congress to please do something here. Either they're going to do that or they're going to remand Gonzalez back to the lower courts and say, look, we've got a lot of questions here. We need more factual development. You all changed arguments. There are all these questions. We need to understand A, B, and C better. So lower courts do more with this. Try again. But if you're gonna if they're gonna remand it with guidance, do you think they're gonna talk about what they think the actual proper understanding of two thirty is? Maybe. So there were, in both cases, there was a ton of discussion about line drawing. And we don't like absolute immunity, but if we don't have absolute immunity, what are we going to do here? So I, I think that the, the guidance could simply be lower courts help us figure out what non-absolute immunity looks like here. And I, I, I'll say I'm a torts professor. I love reasonableness. Reasonableness uberalis. It, it is the rule of the the common law. And I, I think that the justices share much of that sympathy. And the problem with statutes like this is they prevent the development of common law norms and the development of understandings of what reasonableness might look like. So if we do back away from this understanding of 230, it's going to be messy. It's going to be generationally messy. Yeah, that's for sure. I, I, and I will point out that a hundred years ago when we had antitrust laws, the Sherman Act and the like, that were big revolutionary laws, the court said, oh, that's all right, we can find a rule of reason in there. And maybe that is the answer here. Yeah, I, I think I'm going to agree with the idea that, that the justices were dissatisfied by both extremes. They didn't like the absolute immunity that Google seemed to be claiming, but they didn't like what the administration, the government witness was, was calling for either, which is that it's just, just limited to immunity for hosting or failing to take down. And so, yeah, they, they want to have some sort of line in the middle. They don't quite know where it is, but I think it's worth thinking back to what was going on at the time the statute was passed. And the understanding there was pretty clearly much narrower than the Xeron court gave it credit for. Just stop you for a second. The Xeron decision is the decision that launched this absolute immunity without boundaries. Yeah, it did two things. It, it, it not only said that companies are immune for anything that looks like what a traditional publisher did. But it also said that they're immune even if they're told about the illegality of the underlying material. And that goes back to our friends in the copyright community who saw right away that Section 230 would not help them because it said nothing at all about what websites should do if they were told that there was infringing material on their site. And so what they did is they said, carve us out. We don't want any part of this thing. And instead, they put in place the MCA a couple of years later and got it replicated in the European Electronic Commerce Directive. It might be when Congress rethinks this issue, it might be that they'll go back and say, you know, that, that notice liability uh, way out, maybe, maybe you should rethink that. It's not before the courts in this case. Well, so we, there were a couple of justices who thought maybe it was, right, who, who said... Uh, I know, and they, they probably bring them up, but they got shut down when the Alito said, what about this? So I don't think they'll get to that in this case, but I think they're going to send it back to the lower courts and Congress with, in part, a suggestion that they revisit this idea of no liability, even if you're fully informed about the illegality involved. Yeah, jumping in real quick with a, a little bit of galaxy brain perspective, or one of the things that I'm, I'm thinking about with this case, it's building on and it comes out of that 19, early mid-1990s era where we had a very different set of facts, a very different business and technical environment, and a very different court. Justice Thomas is the only justice who was on the court at the time. And there are two really, there are many really important cases and doctrines from that era, but that come up in this setting. The Turner cases and Reno v. ACLU are both really important in the background here. The, the Turner cases are the ones that really establish this idea in the context of cable that editorial discretion is protected by the First Amendment. And Reno v. ACLU, the Communications Decency Act of which Section 230 is part, it was paired with Section 223, 
which ha- would have required basically filtering of pornographic material, not just obscene material, but pornographic material from the internet, which exceeds the boundaries of the First Amendment, the court said, and the court severed Section 223 from Section 230 when it struck down 223. So you had these two paired together in the original CDA. The court struck down half of it. So it would be really interesting to see whether the court today is likely to reflect on the Reno opinion and that decision to sever or the Turner cases because these are central to the modern speech environment and will really potentially give us a a glimpse into the court's broader thinking about fundamental issues to the current economy and information I I think Turner is certainly going to get a rethink on the right because what you're now saying is the First Amendment guarantees the right of four large companies, one of them owned by the People's Republic of China stockholders, to determine what every American can say. And that might not sound like the best First Amendment doctrine these days. Uh, I think you're going to see more of this in the future cases, the case on the Texas and the Florida social media laws. I don't think it's the kind of thing that's going to be addressed in any significant way in in this decision. But you will certainly see revisiting of Turner and Reno in those other cases. Right. And just to be clear, I, I was looking for, or I am looking for glimpses. I agree 100%. These won't be central issues. Yeah, I thought, I thought I saw a glimpse of it, glimpses of it in Alito's questioning that, that he was oh. saying, oh, really? So when you decide who's a responsible news source, there's no editorial control there. You're not exercising some control of the content. That's just somebody else. Huh? He obviously didn't buy it and was asking, why should I immunize you for deciding that Breitbart is disreputable, but Mother Jones is is great news? Yeah, if I could also just jump in. I mean, I will be honest here. Your, your podcast is 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 making you know all sorts of confessions still. But you know, as someone who's probably a little bit you know more to the populist side of the Republican Party than most of the people here, the oral argument was in many ways a disappointment in the sense that, you know, you didn't see the sort of skepticism about the Zoran decision that you, you saw in, in Thomas's statement in the Malware Bites case. And, you know, getting back to, to, to Mark's point about how, you know, Zoran said the two things, one, that C1 covers editorial function, and then, you know, the, the knowing liability standard. I mean, I, this whole problem, I mean, from the you know more, more populist, you know, conservative complaint about C one is that is a misreading of Zoran. I mean, if you actually read it, and I've written about this, that's a mis sort of a, a, an out of context quotation due to a, a badly placed pronoun antecedent. The editorial function discussed in Zoran was talking about the editorial functions of third parties. So it's saying that if a user makes an editorial decision, the platform is not liable for. But that has been transformed in through a very unified and extremely well-paid legal campaign to become the dominant rule in the courts of appeals. And that, I was just, just looping back to what everyone's saying about, you know, send it about how the court, how the justices wanted to send it back to Congress. I mean, there is a little, I mean, it does seem rather cynical for the courts, for the Supreme Court to do that because, you know, they allowed a very well-engineered legal program, a legal defense bar to essentially shape a vital statute to them. They allowed them to become essentially monopolists and then have disordinate control in Congress. And then then the Supreme Court says, well, you know, it's not our problem. You know, we wash our hands, send it back to Congress. And of course, Congress has been planning Section 230 revisions like I mean, every Congress people are constantly sending me these these bills. Nothing ever happens to them. Well, you know, I wonder yeah. why. So, you know, it, it does sort of, it seems a little swampy if they send it back to Congress. And, and then my last complaint, and then I'll, I'll, I'll get off the populist right thing, I promise. But, you know, but, but I think it was Roberts or Kavanaugh, correct me, please, Stuart, when he was saying, well, you know, all these amici say that it's going to break that net if we change liability. I think that was Kavanaugh, and, you know, yeah. and it's, is Kavanaugh. Okay, right. Well, you know, as political pointed out, you know, half of those are, are total astroturf. Right. I mean, you know, it's not this and and the rest natural, the rest are, are demi semi astroturf. Uh, demi right, exactly. So, you know, it, that just doesn't seem the right way from decision making, but you know, I come from a particular So I tend to share that view. What do you make of the fact that the most populist arguments here probably and the 
one's closest to your view. Of, you know, the, 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 Zarin got it wrong. Uh, uh, Stratton-Oakland was just overruled, and that's the only consequence of 230, was Justice Jackson. She, I, yes. And she was, I, I thought there was real emotion in her address. It's like of Scalia the, had been, you know, I, I, I was commenting to someone, I was listening to the arguments, I'm like, you know, here's Scalia's child. I mean, she's <laughs> actually looking at the text. And which none of them were doing. Um, I also wonder and, whether there was an element of saying, you know, I don't have to embrace pornography to be somebody on the left. Right. And, 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 you know, there is, you know, so the Hannah Aaron's donut where, you know, the, the, the right and the left is coming together and there's skepticism section 230. And so, you know, you, you, you could see that, you know, in opposition to the libertarian, you know, middle right or center right. right. Real, so, real quick, Adam. Justice Gorsuch also paid attention to the text in a really confusing and weird set I, of just, questions I, and effort wacky. to... Uh, let's, let's call <laughs> yeah, it what it is. Right. Justice Jackson's questioning was fantastic, and she, she was really pretty ag aggressive about pushing point with counsel in both Gonzalez and Tamna on both sides of the issue. It was uh, some of the most, I think, insightful and forceful questions. Should also, uh, Justice Barrett went a little textualist to some interesting questions about the meaning of the word user. And what it was doing in Section Gus, do you 230. Have a, do you have a theory on why she was asking that question? Do you think she's got that, that she's afraid her retweets are going to produce liability, or is there something else? <laughs> you know, I I've seen a few interesting takes on it, but none of them were interesting enough for me to remember what they were saying. Yeah. Okay. And who wants to defend Justice Gorsuch's textualism? Anybody? Well, if I could plug my blog post at the Yale Journal of Journal Regulation, you know, critiquing it, I'll, I'll do that now. But but no, I won't take that up. Okay, I, I have I have linked. <laughs> I, I think the court uh, saw where Justice Gorsuch posted some criminal law cases in Bert. Uh, they're now they're still trying to sort out the the damage from and and uh, maybe loath to follow them down that promotes back. I again. have a, I have a theory about Justice Gorsuch and textualism. If you come up with a new textualist way to address a hard problem in the Supreme Court, it's almost certainly because you're reading the statute wrong. Because if it was easy, if it was easy yeah. to read the statute, somebody would have been pushing that and it would have made progress. So his desire to be both originalist and original, I guess, is, is killing him. Because this theory is, when you take it apart, preposterous, I think. Right. Yeah. Well, Stuart, for that same reason that I think they're likely to, to kick this back to the lower courts and wait for a better case, because there isn't a great theory that has come. Normally, the Supreme Court waits for a, a circuit split that sharpens the issues where there's, there's you know, maybe two competing views of, of a statute, let's say, between two different courts of appeals with well-reasoned opinions. We don't really have that here, right? So they're, they're, you, you saw them in the oral argument, like, Debating different theories, right? Trying to come up with one, spin one on 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 the fly. And I, I don't think Supreme Court wants to be in that business. I think they'd far rather wait for a better lower court opinion to come along. I agree with Adam that it would be a punt for them to just you know say, well, Congress, now you have to sort out all this judge-made law for the past couple of decades. But uh, but it would be fairly reasonable, I think, for them to wait until there's a a, a sharper divergence of views from the courts of appeals and to then weigh in. Okay. Uh, well, I have I have I have uh, nailed my colors to the mast, and I will go down with that ship. But uh, it sounds like. Let me ask one last question. We talked about the fact that the two big state legislative rethinks of liability of platforms are are on the docket, and I think were just pushed off so that they could be heard next year instead of this year by asking for the SG's advice. Am I right that uh, while many people think of that, those as First Amendment cases, you have to get through Section 230 first because Section 230 mm -hmm. says you can't have a state law that's inconsistent with two, mm -hmm. 230. So if the court wants to say that either of those laws is permissible, they have to say that the things that those laws do are permissible under Section 230 before they even get to the question of the First Amendment. <laughs> yep. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as I said, you know, the, the, ironically, that's what the Gonzalez plaintiffs argued in their in their amicus in, in in the Florida social media law. They said that Section 230 preempts preempts all state laws that require viewpoint neutrality in by social media companies because C1 gives them. Can, protection for editorial function, you know, again, 
misquoting or misattributing Zoran. And the the Florida case did mention Section 230 a little bit. So, you know, the, you're absolutely right. Okay. So, uh, but I think when those cases come up, they're going to come up with a partisan valence that makes the populist inclinations of Justice Jackson, Justice Sotomayor retreat. They're much more likely to say, well, we can't have, you know, Texas telling us what the platforms can do. I, it, it's going to be fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I, it, it makes more sense now. So folks might remember about two, three weeks ago, the court asked for the Solicitor General to weigh in on whether to grant cert in those cases, which effectively pushes them back to, to next term. There's no way they happen in this term now. And so much of how those cases will be briefed and what the questions presented are will turn on the outcome of Gonzalez and Tomna that it, it's such a fortunate thing that cert wasn't already granted because it, it would just be an absolute mess and mess up how those cases are going to be thought about, but also just pushes everything back to next term and the stakes in those cases are going to be different and greater and the political balance so difficult to predict. Okay, so that, that was a great deep dive on Gonzalez. And I want to pick up our other news stories in the remaining time, just a, a shorter version. Michael, there's been all uh, several stories about hackers in Ukraine breaking into Russian radio stations, TV sites, and the like. And and Dutch intelligence had an interesting report out about how Russia's doing. Can you give us a quick summary on how a cyber war is proceeding in the, the Russia-Ukraine conflict? Yeah, so it's the it's the one year anniversary just a couple of days ago of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and you know several stories that you mentioned showing how both sides of the conflict continue to use cyber weapons as a and really a, I think it's been made increasingly normalized part of warfare. You have two stories about how the Ukrainians are using cyber weapons; they're, they're having a little bit of fun with the Russians. They took down a couple Russian state media websites during one of Putin's speeches, right, making it unavailable and distracting the propaganda you know, wins for the Ukrainians. And they also took over, it appears, a Russian satellite radio operator to broadcast fake warnings about air raids and missile strikes inside of Russia. So, you know, instilling some panic in the Russian population for, for a short period of time. On the other side of the ledger, as you mentioned, the Dutch intelligence services are out with a new you know, public public report about how the Russians have been engaged in cyber operations both before and during the war, and really highlighting that there have been, there's been a lot of activity that the Ukrainians and the NATO defenders have stopped, right? The Russian attacks against a wide variety of military, diplomatic, civilian infrastructure targets. It, you know, to me, this, this really shows that cyber operations are, are here to stay as a, as a part of warfare now. They're components of an armed conflict, just like air, land, and sea operations, and also short of warfare, right? And these gray zone operations in the Raptor conflict are, are here to stay as well. And they target both, both purely military targets as well as ones that are dual use, right? To the Ukrainians, you know, targeting Russian targets that aren't are purely military or governmental in, in their activities. So, you know, this is this is now a normal part of armed conflict and the state practice that needs to build. Yeah, although I, I have to say, if this is what we got in out of cyber warfare, it's like it's like motorcycles go to war, you know? Not much impact, but really sexy. <laughs> yeah, honey, you know, mo they're, they're, I'm, I'm sure there was a lot of attention when motorcycles first came into boom and World War One as yeah. well, right? And then it just becomes another tool that you use. Back, we used to joke, uh, uh, even... Or they held almost 10 years ago. And the way, the way you'll know that cyber has really sunk in, that people have fully appreciated it, is when we stop talking about cyber as a separate yeah. discipline, Perfect. right? And it's just, it's just another tool that you use to achieve your objectives. Yeah. Okay, Gus, there's been new developments in competition law. Can you, just, just in the last week, can you give us a quick overview? I was particularly struck by the Justice Department getting ready to step in on Adobe's Figma deal. Yeah, so a lot of stuff going on. Stuart, I'll let you say some words about the, the Figma deal. It's a 20 billion deal that DOJ apparently is planning to try to block. We also are expecting this week news, I'll frame it as, with whether DOJ is going to step in to block the JetBlue Spirit airline, airline merger. They'd given themselves, they'd agreed to February 28th as a deadline, but that might slip a little bit. We're starting to get early comments in for the Federal Trade Commission's non-competes. And what we're seeing, the ABA and American Hospital Association have both written comments that amount to saying, hey, FTC, doing this total ban on non-competes is too broad. You should narrow it to low-wage, lower-skill workers instead. 
And there's been Instead some the speculation. <laughs> yeah, yes. Um, there, there's been some speculation all along that the FTC has planned to do that, that they announced an overbroad rule to get a lot of comments, knowing that they'd never be able to do that and then want to dial it back. The FTC has officially abandoned the meta within merger. That's the, the Facebook acquisition. So they officially said, we're not right, going to do anything. They asked for an injunction. They were denied the injunction. Yep. And then and then meta just <laughs> closed. And now the FTC is saying, oh yeah, I guess we should drop that. <laughs> and and what, one bit of news official as of this morning. So we we have really important Supreme Court litigation this term, the Axon case, which might dial back Humphrey's executor and make it possible for the targets of Federal Trade Commission investigations to go to district court to challenge the constitutionality of those actions before they are complete. That's a really big case. The court this morning granted cert in a Fifth Circuit challenge to the CFPB. So wow. it's not quite... challenging it? <laughs> Is that on, on constitutional um, grounds? Yeah, yeah. Yep, yep. the, the constitutionality of the CFPB structure. So not directly competition, but going to the structure of the administrative state, which plays a big deal in a lot of these competition cases. It does sound like they're, they're picking on the administrative agencies that nobody's ever heard of, but it's going to be a big well, deal for the SEC and the FTC. And yes. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I will only say about the airline merger that anything that causes Spirit Airlines to disappear from the face of the earth is a, is a good step. And if we could salt <laughs> the earth where it once stood, I'd be even happier. But that's because I've flown on them. And on the, uh, the Figma deal, this was a, a very big price that Adobe paid for Figma because Figma does stuff that Adobe wishes they did, tried to do, and couldn't beat Figma in doing. So they bought Figma at a very high Price. At least that's how I see it. It's it's basically uh, working with the design tools. And so to my mind, and you tell me, Gus, if you disagree, this is kind of an OG antitrust case. It's like a classic case where you say you're emerging in order to cut off competition in a field where both of you are active and where the buyer is losing. That's always going to be the complaint in every merger, ah, though. Right. Well, okay. <laughs> But like in, 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 when, in the when, within case, Adobe, in the within case, they they, they, they were so far but, from being a competitor that it was it was ridiculous. Right. So within is the unusual potential competition case, and you you kind of hit the head on the nail though with why Adobe might pay a premium to acquire another company when they attempted to do this on their own and failed. Maybe that says, hey, this is harder than we think. We want to get in. We're behind the market. We need to pay a premium in order to do that. Okay. All right. Let's go to the European Union for a couple of cases. Adam, the EU has started a consultation about whether instead of telecommunications companies paying for their networks and then charging their customers, they should ask big American companies to, to cover the cost. That's my biased view of what's going on here. It's rent-seeking. But uh, you tell me, this is what it looks like this is what EU is going to do. They're going to find a way to make Google and Apple and, and then the big content companies pay for the fact that their packets are traveling on somebody else's telecom network. Do I have this about right? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. I mean, I, I suppose if you're a big tech company, the scariest sentence to hear is, you know, I'm from the EU and I'm here to consult. <laughs> uh, so exactly. And, you know, it, it did strike my, it did get my attention. I mean, I'm following it a little bit because, you know, the way the Europeans approach to, you know, regulation is, a, you know, a bit you know, mafia-like, essentially, how much can we extract from big guys? And they seem to be more unashamed than we are. But, you know, it did resonate with what we're trying to do here with broadband build out. You know, this is exactly what Commissioner Carr has been advocating. He says, you know, these guys should pay for it. And, you know, his, his argument's not, you know, it does have some force, which is who's making the most money from these platforms? Well, you know, it, it, it's the fan companies and shouldn't they pay for it? And yet we seem to be going in the exact opposite direction. And I think it just sort of, I'm, I mean, because I have the bead program on my brain and I think it's one of those, you know, atrocious things in the world. But you know, as you know, it's what, $66 billion plus some other stuff for broadband, for broadband development in, in, you know, rural areas, supposedly, or underserved areas. And, you know, 
I was at the hearings when when this was being floated, and you know the, the companies were like, oh well, you know, ten billion's great. I mean, that's that's like more than we've ever been able to deal with. And of course, Congress said, no, try sixty. How about seventy billion dollars? And you know, if you look at the perspective of you know who's benning from and you know cuius bonus. Is this is a subsidy to the fan companies, which would want to explain the enthusiasm yeah. of, of, of our, our congressmen to, to, to this lavish funding. But also, you know, it, it just sort of puts the whole question of, you know, what, what is this whole charade for? And, you know, it, certainly it doesn't seem to me that the consumer is going to get very much out of it one way or the so other. This is, so your, um, your, your view is that the, both of the big markets in the West have pretty sleazy ways of paying for infrastructure. So one of the fascinating things here is just the the international dynamics of how this all plays out, especially you can put the IRA in the U.S. and the European response that they're having. This is all state protection. This is the Inflation Reduction Act, which has nothing to do with Chinese balloons. Correct. The, the international ramifications for how this all plays out, we're in a new era of international competition and industrial planning that is pitting regions against each other in really difficult ways for those of us with more global views on peace and prosperity to grapple with. Yep. I, I, I don't think the Europeans ever abandoned that view of the world, but we have too now, and, and that's what really gripes them. All right, uh, speaking of the EU, Brussels is setting out to fix the GDPR, which I suspect is a little like people who complain that the elections are fixed, and that they intend to fix it to make sure that they extract more rent from large American companies. Mark? Well, don't don't, don't expect really substantive overhauls. They're they're proposing some procedural changes. But of course, you know, when when Europe has a substantive problem with the laws that they got, they usually create a procedural solution. And and in this case, the problem came from the one-stop shopping enforcement procedure under GDPR. That allowed big tech companies to put their headquarters in a friendly regulatory jurisdiction. And most of them picked Ireland. And now Ireland has the jurisdiction over their privacy practices. The substantive problem is that, in the view of many, the, the Irish Data Protection Commission is too soft on big tech, and and so they, they want to find a procedural way to reduce the influence of the commission that has the jurisdiction. And right now, there's a way of doing that, but it's this long, cumbersome process where other data protection authorities weigh in with objections if a case is decided in a way that they don't like, and that concerns privacy practices that take place within their own borders. And recently, the Irish DPC was overturned in a case involving Meta's personalized ad practices. The Irish DPC said that you can you can rely on service necessity for all those personalized ads, and the other data protection authorities disagreed. And so they had this huge process of coming to a regulatory decision, and it was excruciating. It took years and multiple layers of review of the initial decision. And finally, it got to the the collective body of the European Data Protection Board, which is all the data protection commissions. And in January, finally, the EDPB ruled that, no, no, Meta can't rely on service necessity as a legal basis for its personalized data practices. So they have to do something else or come up with a, a different operation. And so the, the procedural rules are really designed to create a smooth and streamlined way of resolving these kind of difficulties, but it's a procedural mess. Right. Uh, so what what they're trying to do is to streamline those procedures for resolving disagreements. It wouldn't be necessary unless they had a substantive disagreement about the interpretation and implementation of GDPR, but they don't all agree. And so they're going to, quote, streamline cooperation as a way of dealing with a substantive uh, disagreement. We don't know what those new procedures are going to be like yet. There's going to be a consultation that's over at the end of March, early spring. They'll propose something, and that's a very short window to get something done through the Commission, the Parliament, and the Council. There are European elections in the spring of 2024, so expect a whole bunch of lobbying by tech companies and privacy advocates over the next several months. Yeah, I, I do think I, when they say streamlining, they mean making it easier to overrule Ireland yes. and Luxembourg uh, and impose even more demanding requirements on the companies that are based there, which are all 
U.S. companies are almost all U.S. companies. So yeah. yeah, this is of course the usual European Union solution, right? There's there are no problems that can't be solved by more Europe, and 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 this is going or to more be more interesting, more process. Yes, yeah, <laughs> well, that that too. That's right. It's, it's like Europe and process are the European Union's cowbell. <laughs> by the way, there's a lesson for the U.S. pretty clearly in this one. If you if you give privacy regulation to 50 state privacy regulators. That's going to be a disaster. I mean, even if they all adopted the same text, uh, they would have different implementation and enforcement priorities. And so you'd have these huge differences by state. We really do need a, a single federal statute, and it's got to be enforced by a single federal privacy agency. Okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to get us through three or four stories pretty quickly. Here's one I actually really like, and contrary to my usual view of Apple, it's a story where Apple is contributing to the good of the human race. They apparently are very close to being able to develop a blood glucose monitor that goes in an Apple Watch and could use lasers to, to measure your glucose in your interstitial fluid so that you could get kind of running readouts on where your blood glucose is. So if you're pre-diabetic or diabetic, this is a very big deal. And if you're the core Apple market, the worried, well, interested in being a more quantified self, it's it's the best possible app. Honor from heaven. <laughs> okay. So Adam, what's the FDA going to have to do with this to make it work? I, well, or not work. I mean, I think that's that's the horror of it. I mean, the question is whether or not the FDA is going to, you know, put its boot in, in on on the on the neck of innovation and creativity because it's already doing that. So there already are continuous glucose monitors that are actually patches that are inserted into the skin, and and they actually um, work pretty well. You, you just slap them on. It's not like they're digging deep, and you you can you can right. you can collect information from them with your phone, as I remember. Right, you can collect, but you but you cannot. You have to if you. What's so interesting? And I'm, in, you know, I, I have family members who have T1. It's a terrible disease. But what you find is that people you don't have to be a, a doctor to do this. You just have to be good at data science or really being able to individualize their insulin take using all sorts of algorithms and and AI to figure out what really works for you, given your weight and appetite and and particular biochemistry and exercise. And, you know, it's changing people's lives. What the FDA could do is what to, to, to the Apple Watch is what they did to the patches and as what they did to, you know, 23andMe is that then this definition, which they have reaffirmed in their recently released regs to the Curious Act that came out this fall, it's saying, look, we just don't, reg we, we don't, we don't, we regulate that simply the sensor to make sure that it's reading correctly. We regulate the computer analysis that goes that takes that data as well. And so, you know, if they wanted to, they could just sort of step on this and say, you know, you drag it out some more because they're already doing it. And I think it, it, it's a really good example of one, whilst hope technology outsmarts the FDA, make it too ridiculous for them to enforce, or two, maybe they should think about this and, you know, allow people, you know, they can say that the, the, the monitor is working well, but they cannot regulate what we do with data analysis. I mean, not much more to add other than the FDA moves at the speed of the FDA and first do no harm forgets the other half of the equation of don't not do harm. And yeah. they're, it, it's tragic and terrible that the way that they approach so many of these new technologies. Now, I, I think that it is fair to look back to our earlier conversation about the pace of technology and Google and Twitter and, hey, maybe yeah. tech without constraints, they're going to move ahead so quickly that Apple will give us uh, watches that they don't fully debug or the algorithm works great for 95% of folks and completely miscalculates stuff for 5% of folks. And for tech, that's pretty good. For the FDA, you need to bring that 5% down to 0.00001%. And probably the right place to be is somewhere between those. Yeah. I, and look, I, I, I have plenty of impatience with the FDA. They, they, they screw this up all the time. But you, you have to recognize that there is not a single thing that they look at that is not a potentially revolutionary new technology that they are delaying by insisting on more data or more explanation. And sometimes they're right. And, and they all remember the times they were right. 
And we often remember the times they were wrong. Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay. Three more stories. Is generative AI coming for the lawyers? My guess is yes, Gus. Oh, yes, absolutely. No question. No doubt. And this isn't new. So we're, we're starting to hear reports of law firms using generative AI for researching just background legal research, drafting legal memos, stuff like that, not replacing lawyers. I'll add a gloss to that in a second, but in collaboration with lawyers. So you have this as a tool that lawyers are using. It's, it's, what, you get, we, it's what you get when you ask an associate to, to find you some forms and, and fiddle with them. Right. They, yeah, they take and, the forms, and, they and, fiddle with them, and they show you and you say, oh, no, this won't do. And you start marking them up. And in fact, probably generally doing, in many cases, a better job. And if we go back 20, 25 years to the early e-discovery era, I guess I'll just call it 20 years, there was a whole debate and discussion and fight with e-discovery over whether we can use search terms to search through millions of pages of electronic documents, or if we should need to have a, a, a an associate going through each and every page to say it's effectively searched. And what we quickly found out is yeah, electronic searches, search terms, you you have an error rate, you miss stuff, but you miss less stuff than humans because humans kind of suck yeah. at doing repetitive tasks. And th this isn't going to eliminate lawyers because you're still going to need to have the human reading and evaluating the shoddy work product that you get out of this. But you need to have that when you're, sorry to a junior associates, but you need to have that when you're working with junior associates too. And really what we're going to see is the supervising associate, they're probably going to need to be doing a little bit more of the grunt work than they need to be doing today. But you'll have one associate with AI doing the work of one associate plus 10 junior associates. Yep. And the, the cost just tells a story 100% right there. I, I'll, I'll also add, just about every law school in the world right now, just like every other part of every university department, is flipping out about ChatGPT and generative AI and doing their best to figure out how to prevent it from being used ever because it is going to be so disruptive to our lazy way of grading and evaluating student work. And oh my God, can we get with the program? This is the tool of the future. We should be embracing it, welcoming it, learning how to work with it, researching it, teaching our students how to use it effectively and ethically. And this isn't to be feared because if you fear these technologies, you are going to be left behind because the basic economics of one associate plus generative AI is going to beat out one associate plus 10 junior associates every single time. All right. So yep. I, I've got a friend who works for one of these legal tech startups and uh, working on generative AI used actually primarily by accounting firms, it turns out. Well, to, confirming my to, view of accounting firms. <laughs> yep. Yeah, that, that, to, help, to help them try to figure out when there's liability. And I asked him, how is what you're doing not providing legal advice? The answer, well, first of all, we say we're not providing legal advice, which tells me, <laughs> tells me that the state bar associations are going to seek to regulate this and try to protect protect lawyers' jobs. The, uh, the guild protections will, will rear their head, is my prediction. Could be. Yep. Uh, although, what are you going to say? You say, that machine is providing legal advice? I mean, the machine is doing what the machine does. And and, and it, what it might be mean is that the you can't have lawyers review it until it goes to somebody who's a licensed lawyer who will review it. But you, know, you can't sell it as a product that's been quality controlled. Yeah. You, you only send, sell the, the, the raw material. What I find puzzling here is what you'd really want is machine language training on, you know, the work products of the last 15 years in all the big law firms, right? They've got these massive databases of stuff that they have done the last 15 years, and it's probably been quality controlled before they put it in their final file. And so if you could train ChatGPT only on that, it would be a much higher quality product but every once in a while, it would have a client's name in it, and that mm -hmm. would be the end of it. Yep. Yeah, but aren't they doing that already? I know, I mean, Europe is, is far, I mean, the law firms in Europe, at least the ones I've known, are far more ahead in in sort of automating everything they do. And I mean, I would suspect that there must be startups already who are doing precisely that. Or maybe they're not. And no, maybe, no, I'm know, sure they are. Because <laughs> I, 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 
How, how dare you, sir, suggest that Europe is ahead of the United States? I know, I know, very especially especially given my pol- political views. Yes, I know, but but in my experience, a lot of them really have. And uh, you know, to me, it's it, it's it's this is not all that unusual. I mean, you know, tar has been around in e-discovery for ten years. <laughs> it's been doing what lawyers do, and we all sort of managed. And it's been very disruptive. I mean, in the sense that the big firms had a great profit model of of hiring out young associates to do tedious, you know, discovery work and they changed their model, but they're still making money. So, I mean, I think we'll survive. And all those, uh, all those lawyers doing all that work are going to be necessary just to handle the BIPA claims that are coming down the road. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. Gus, do you want to do, do you want to tell us, this will be the last story. The Illinois <laughs> Supreme Court has I shocked, I think, a lot of people, not because it got the law wrong, but because it was willing to get the law right in a way that is going to be extraordinarily expensive. Yeah, so this is the Illinois to state law, the Biometrics Information Protection Act, which is a, a unique one in 50 states only Illinois has it. And Stuart, you you said the, the punchline that every time basically a company accesses or makes use of biometrics is a separate offense under it. And this is a strict liability statutory damages sort of a regime. And it's, you know, let's go back to Gonzalez and the flip side of Gonzalez, Section 230, absolute immunity is stupid. It always is. It never works well. When you have it, it gets exploited. Firms structure their businesses around it. Absolute liability is stupid. It never works out well. Plaintiff's attorneys structure their firms around it. BIPA is just, it may be how it's written. But it, it's not a reasonable way of regulating a technology. So the interesting, uh, you're talking about structuring yourself around the, the law. The, the most interesting argument here was uh, that people said, you know, if you say that every time you put your fingerprint on a, a device, it's another violation and it's another thousand dollars. The people who have claims are going to realize they have claims and then they're going to save them for five <laughs> years and then they're going to hit you. They're going to, and they're going to spend those five years putting their thumb on the pad (laughs) every 20 minutes. (laughs) Yep. This is a nutty law and it's just getting nuttier. And the fault is the the legislature in Illinois, probably not the court, although the court Mm -hmm. could have salvaged this and chose not to by about, you know, I think it was a one justice margin. Okay. Look, thanks to everybody. I did promise, I want to say that I would read entertaining and entertainingly abusive comments that we received as reviews, and I have one. So I'm going to close out with this from Dunsany at Planet Heidi. He says, great show, great perspectives. Been listening for years at 1.25 speed because long-winded lawyers get paid by the hour. Don't worry, Dunsany. I listen at 1.25 as well. And this is really the best podcast to understand the real issues in cyber, technical or otherwise. I've been doing this long enough to not care so much about the, the hack du jour, but instead want to hear about the legal and compliance changes that really touch on the daily lives of the security industry. And this show brings it. They also do cover the hack du jour. First started listening years ago when I was put on a privacy panel with Stuart Baker and needed to equip myself for the debate. Ironically, it turned out I ended up agreeing with everything the old coot had to say. Who'd have thunk it? The man is actually reasonable and cogent. Been hooked ever since. Uh, thanks, I guess. <laughs> no, that's a that's a great, entertaining, abusive, and all too accurate uh, review. Adam, Michael, Gus, Mark, thanks for joining us. That was a great discussion. For our listeners, keep sending those reviews and comments. Send them to cyberlawpodcast at stepto.com if you want us to read them as email or leave them as a review on iTunes or Spotify if you want to get them read on the air. This has been episode 445 of the Cyber Law Podcast. Now with more Cuditude. Can you dig it?